another episode of Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb, and today I'm joined by Unlimited Hangout contributor Johnny Bedmore for a more unconventional podcast. As many of you may have noticed and may have read in my recently published update, this podcast episode is a bit late and neither of us have written very much recently due to the fact that we moved out of Chile, which had been my home for the last six plus years. So this episode will start off by going over first why um, I ended up deciding to leave Chile, since a lot of people are, are completely unaware of how bad things have gotten there. And now some of you may be thinking, well, Chile is really, really far away from where I live, so good thing that the you know dystopian madness going on over there won't affect me. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Chile, since 1973 has been used as a testbed for both police state and neoliberal policies by the U.S. and the U.K. and the West in general. And over the course of COVID, the U.K. government in particular has adopted policies like its five-tier lockdown system from the five-step lockdown system that was first tested out in Chile starting in around March or April of last year. So if anything, the situation going on now in Chile that we are about to describe to you in detail is likely to be rolled out or its rollout will be attempted uh, in the West during this uh, alleged third wave period that we've been hearing about recently that they keep saying is going to happen around June or or July of this year. So uh, we're going to start off uh, talking about the drastic differences in how Chile's COVID situation uh, and their policies are advertised abroad versus how things actually are on the ground. So Johnny... Uh, coming from the UK and last year's lockdown uh, over there, what were your impressions of the lockdown situation in Chile? And also, uh, how was Chile advertised to you while you were in the UK uh, by the press? And how did that compare with uh, how things were actually playing out down there? Well, uh, thanks for having me today, Whitney. Uh, it was it was a, a, a real shock. I, I mean, when you're in a, a bad situation, a lockdown anyway, and you want to get out of one lockdown and go into another lockdown, you you, you always like to think that the other place is going to be better off, it's going to be uh, easier to get by, there's going to be uh, less strict rules. But in this case, it was kind of the opposite. But I knew what I was walking into. And it, it became uh, clearer the closer I, I got to Chile because, um, first of all, the airports in the UK um, were all very uh, they didn't know what they were doing they hadn't a clue about how to rework their their businesses according to the models that they have to now the legal and health codes that they now have to follow um so i was waiting often for people to go into back rooms with my passport and talk about me for for like 10 15 minutes before they come back out and ask me another for another uh banal sort of um arbitrary form that they have to fill out so it was a lot of form filling out um had to go around the the mulberry bush we would say in britain we had i had to go the scenic route round. so i got to fly to germany and see how their airports were empty and then got to fly to brazil to see how their airports were empty and then got to fly to chile to see how their airports were empty um in the uk uh, in the daily mail they were advertising Chile as still open and not affected by lockdowns. You should go to Chile. It's a really nice place to go on holiday, not somewhere where you're not going to be affected by the same problems we have. Oh, man. And and that was yeah. Well, that was that was a a, a, a real doozy of a um, what doozy? Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, 
by the time you got into Chile, you start to notice armed guards everywhere. And uh, I mean, I had traveled for, I had taken a long way around. So I had been traveling for about 24 hours by the time I got off the uh, plane and uh, into a, a, a wonky minibus and passed all of the many lines of tables of people who checked the form you were given just five minutes ago. And then you go to the next table. Someone else checks that same form. You go to the next thing. They want to look at that form um, and all of the rest of your forms uh, you you go to pass to military guards who are standing next to people with clipboards who are also going to check your, your forms before you leave the airport by the time I got out I, I felt sick as a pig um, <laughs> which isn't good when it's military roadblocks checking your temperature and uh, and and etc every uh, uh, all this all the way down the road I mean the stretch between where I was heading and uh, where the airport was was obviously um it was in a, a lockdown like i've not seen over here military roadblocks is something that we don't we don't have in britain yet it's obviously something that's on its way um and i'm sure it wasn't like that in chile um a year ago uh, but I, I my experience of it was going into somewhere which was a harsher much harsher lockdown than uh, the uk and having to go through um Lots of scary big military men who were watching your every move and looking out for any symptoms that they could break open and and use as a, a form of I don't know trying to uphold the COVID law. Well, some of those checkpoints that you're talking about, you know, initially with the whole COVID situation, it was the police, which is like a federal police force in Chile. Um, and so they're like, you know, local officers would be manning the checkpoints. But, the, it, you know, um, by December, um, at least in the region where I lived, which is uh, the ninth region of Chile, the, also called the uh, La Araucanía, um, it became mostly military people with large guns um, doing these these checkpoints between just like towns uh, not even like big cities really to go between any sort of, you know, between any district. Um, you had to basically show your papers, proof of residency, uh, to be able to get in or, uh, or out or back into, you know, the, the region you're moving out of. And you don't have the right paper, you get fined, you can get arrested. I mean, it's really nuts. And apparently not that, you know, long ago I had a, a friend that was in Tamuco, which is, you know, sort of a, I guess the city of this um, particular region, saw a guy get arrested because he didn't have the right papers to prove um, residency or right of travel for a legitimate uh, excuse uh, for travel or whatever. He didn't have that, didn't meet the requirements of the military people there and just got sent to prison, got arrested and, and sent off. So um, definitely um, a situation that hasn't really been seen in the West a lot. And surprisingly, uh, when you look at press reports on Chile and COVID, uh, to a large extent, it's uh, in the past, it was criticism of the lockdown policies, but not the, the extreme militarization uh, that was going on with this was not discussed. And more recently, Chile has actually been praised heavily for leading, uh, being one of the world leaders in the amount of vaccine doses uh, given, given out any, um, given on a, given out on a daily basis. So... With uh, Chile in, in in general, my experience of coming in, into Chile, uh, when you're 
in a van and you're having to stop every 10 minutes to vomit uh, out the door and and you're worried about avoiding uh, military checkpoints <laughs> and being tested for temperature when you're ill is not is not a good uh, is not a good experience uh, there there there, <laughs> there there was a lot of um uh, a real sharp shock I mean, it's it's nice when you get over to a place you've never been in in the world and you get to see a few new sights. But I think it became very obvious from uh, uh, on arrival in Chile that things were a lot different over there than they were in the UK. Where in the UK the people were still, uh, you know, abiding by the 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 uh, mask nar- uh, mask mandate. I'm not even sure if it was a a mandate. By by the time I was leaving, but the people, most people were wearing masks in shops. They were uh, doing that sort of thing, but they were not wearing masks outside. And one of the things I saw really straight away in Chile was the amount of people who were in masks, um, and it was in all situations, including seeing people sunbathing in their masks in the <laughs> sea, in their masks in swimming pools, in masks. I mean, it was a uh, quite a quite a an experience to see right well you know chile has a national mask mandate and they enforce that outside and actually uh you and i got stopped by the the police uh because we weren't wearing masks and we uh pretended like neither of us knew spanish uh and the lady basically made it clear that she was going to fine us if we didn't um put them on and we were outside it wasn't particularly crowded in the area we were either um you know and we were walking past a line of people that were eating outside on benches without masks on right so i mean it was just pretty ludicrous but you know as a as has long been the situation with chile's police force yeah they love enforcing uh, whatever arbitrary edict they're allowed to enforce. And, you know, they really like to uh, show people the rule breakers, uh, you know, who's in charge. So they never uh, miss an opportunity to do that. But you know, what's really interesting, too, is that, you know, the Chilean population has really rolled over for a lot of these things that have been a lot more contentious in the West. So mask mandates being one of those. Really, no, there's never really been much national debate in Chile over whether or not to wear masks. I mean, it pretty much has been uh, widely accepted by the population the need to wear them outside, inside, in schools, have children wear them, um, you know, babies even wear them and all of that stuff. I mean, really not a lot of debate about it. Whereas, you know, in the US and the UK, it's a rather uh, contentious uh, debate. And at least in the UK, as far as I'm aware, you know, uh, school children don't have to wear masks that are really young. And in Chile, they're attempting to um, enforce that. It was a very, um, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a very shocking experience to see how people had uh, uh, adapted so quickly to all of the rules to such an extreme level. Um, but on the actual journey down from the airport, the uh, driver who was uh, t- taking me home was uh, saying that Chilean people, you know, they're, they're rule breakers and the like. They, they, they've got to be kept under control. And I think that was, um, something that I saw over and over that everybody thinks they're a naughty girl or boy in Chile, that they're all in trouble for some reason and they probably deserve it. Um, so they, they seem like 
I, I don't want to use this term derogatory, but like beaten dogs that they've been beaten so many times before that they just accept things as soon as they're, they're put into force. Well, I mean, I, I would say that's, you know, based on my experience on Chile, definitely true for a lot of people that were adults or young adults during the imposition of the Pinochet dictatorship, which for those that don't know, uh, was a U.S.-backed military coup that took place on September 11th, 1973 in Chile. Um, and it resulted in the death of their democratically elected uh, leader, Salvador Allende, and, of course, uh, the Pinochet dictatorship, well known for its uh, massive human rights violations, mass murder, kidnappings, um, you know, including the murder of uh, some of the most uh, loved Chilean songwriters um, and, you know, celebrities and, and things of that nature. And so, um, you know, that, of course, went on for decades with the U.S.'s full approval, at which point Chile was used as a testbed for the development of, of neoliberalism, really. Um, and a lot of other policies would get beta tested there and later implemented um, <clears throat> in, in different countries like the U.S. or the U.K., or they would attempt to. Um, and a lot of this was it wasn't just, you know, police state policies. A lot of it was economic policies. You had uh, basically Milton Friedman uh, Ch uh, people, uh, Chileans educated by him at the University of Chicago were basically put in charge of the Pinochet era economy. They're known in Chile uh, as the Chicago boys. And they basically, you know, had free reign of, of what to do um, with Chile's economy and, you know, uh, basically formed the, the model of neoliberalism that was later imposed on various other uh, nations following uh, Western-backed regime change uh, efforts. Uh, of course, there's a long list of those. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware of that, so I don't really need to go into that. But basically, you know, you have a population live under that sort of dictatorship um, and where people get, you know, disappeared and, and kidnapped and uh, brutally tortured and, and murdered by the state. Uh, a lot of times the people that come out of that don't want to rock the boat at all. Um, and you really see that in a big way with um, a, a particular faction of... Um, of Chile's population, uh, age-wise, uh, you know, the younger generation, I think, is a is a is definitely different, um, in that sense, particularly, uh, particularly those that came of age after the Pinochet era was over, um, you know, in the early '90s. But I think with the whole COVID situation, um, the information landscape in Chile is so much more controlled than the U.S. Um, which I think is also, in a way, a testament to the power of independent media, which uh, you know, a scene of that. Uh, like that in, in Chile, totally non-existent. So you have the younger population really going along with the narrative and believing it because there isn't any information um, really uh, available um, that, that sort of runs against that. A lot of it is like copy and pasted from, you know, uh, U.S. independent media sources or U.K. independent media sources, but a lot of it actually isn't really of good quality and, you know, sort of shared on Facebook sometimes can be borderline QAnon <laughs> uh, stuff, which is pretty funny to see. But, um, you know, uh, it basically has led to really, um, you know, a lack of resistance for these policies um, pretty much across the board in Chile in a way that it doesn't seem to be happening in the West. There is a difference, uh, definite striking difference between generations in Chile. I'd say the, the, the older people you can tell is a shadow of of a previous genocide hanging over them um and the younger people are obviously so much different but 
um, maybe you could describe them as naive, not for their own fault, but through the lack of information that they receive and the lack of education that they get um, and uh, lack of understanding of what Western societies look like because I think they, they look up to Western societies so much and they still haven't caught up with the reality of what it's like to be within a Western society where you still um, have the same amount to eat, you still have the same level of housing, you still have all of those things as you do in a place like Chile. Um, um, but but you, you you know there's no real difference between being a slave in one country and being a slave in the other right well you know especially this this middle middle age generation in in chile that sort of came of age during the pinochet era there you definitely see in a lot of cases the sort of worship of the united states and the west in general but their idea of what the west is is very different to what it actually is they sort of have this idea that's been largely shaped by series tv series and movies they've watched on netflix and they think that all americans live that way and and, and things like that and have a very like rudimentary understanding of the actual issues that go on in these countries and the pitfalls of living in them what u.s empire does uh, abroad in, in the u.s military among other things you know because they're getting a lot of their information you know from hollywood or cnn chile <laughs> you know and, and avenues of information like that you know they're they're getting a very a specific image um, of what the U.S. is that is very runs very counter to what you know the reality of the situation is. It's sort of like this. Um, it's really a fantasy in a lot of ways, and of course, if you try and challenge that, it, it's kind of a jaw dropping for some of them. Uh, you know, back uh, several years ago, I, I used to tutor you know some Chileans uh, in in English, <laughs> and if I would like talk about you know, certain things about the U.S. that they were unaware of or issues of corruption in the government, for example, that were, you know, are well known among Americans. It was just uh, totally wow for them. Like they'd never uh, knew that it was like that. Um, and it's it's just kind of interesting to see. So I think, you know, um, given that Western governments all agree, you know, publicly on the COVID narrative and, and on lockdowns or whatever, um, you know, there hasn't really been a lot of debate um, it, among those circles in Chile, I think, because they're like, well, you know, the West is doing it, and this is what the, how the West is responding, and so it's the same for us type of deal. Going on to lockdowns in Chile, wow, that was a uh, more extreme than than we had in Britain, and they were having in Britain at the same time. Uh, uh, lockdowns in Chile were you're not allowed to leave your house except for twice a week with the permission from the police and you only get to go out for two hours per time and that will cover all of the, the the things you need to do shopping and to travel to the shop and to travel back and by that time it's two hours is gone in no time so you have no other um, option to do anything else uh, lots of the services are just closed down the, the, the shops uh, I mean they will check your papers on shop doors the supermarkets have armed guards on the doors um they got armed guards on the exit they've got guards inside walking the aisles and they've got less customers in there than they've got security guards on occasion uh the the idea that that is something that keeps you safe when you walk go by a school and you've got three police officers lining up the children outside the school so they can go to school in the morning and and there's like free armed guard i don't even know how that was helping anybody what you were going to shoot the kids if they ran into school too quickly or didn't keep a two meter distance or don't show the right papers <laughs> yeah I, I mean why would you need 
need armed guards to to organize children and it was like you know there's like 10 11 children in the queue and free armed guards it does not make any sense there's no there's no reason for it uh no rhyme and reason it it it's experiencing what chile was like was very um you're seeing the actions of bureaucracy come out the 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 uh the, the terrible faults that come from that sort of bureaucratic idea that will put blanket rules over everything where to stop traffic jams in Chile, they create traffic jams preemptively. And, and it seems like you're wondering which came first, you know, the, the traffic jam or the police. Well, it was the police and the cone guy who came first, you know, <laughs> the, the, these guys did things in a very special way. They, they did things by the letter of the law and they were uncompromising. Um, and and that comes out in their society. It's a really weird one because a lot of Chileans seem very cool and relaxed, but I think they're cool and relaxed in their own backyard and in their own house. They're not so cool and relaxed when they go out in public. They're very scared of what could happen or what problems could occur. Well, I think, you know, um, that definitely was a change that began with the COVID crisis, like the amount of like fear and distrust expressed between people in public in Chile. In the town I was living in, it was it wasn't as bad uh, before COVID. But as soon as like you know, the fear got ramped up, not just in Chile but but globally, it definitely changed and hasn't really gone back to to normal. Um, I guess you could say. But going back to the lockdown policy, it's worth explaining a little more detail in that because, as I sort of mentioned earlier, uh, the UK's lockdown policy, the five tier one that I think was introduced a couple months ago, like the end of last year was it was based um off of the Chile five step lockdown strategy um that's called paso a paso that uh began uh, months before it was rolled out in the UK and what's interesting in in both cases is that the the two tiers or two steps that are closest to normalcy in lockdown hardly any as county or district ever gets assigned those really it's a uh, the the most severe lockdown the second most severe lockdown in the you know, uh, less uh, restrictive version of lockdown or really where um, the vast majority of the country is at any given time. And that's how Chile has been as well. So um, step one is the most severe uh, quarantine situation. Uh, Step two has that uh, extreme quarantine situation imposed only on the weekends and holidays. Uh, Step three um, basically has, uh, most things are open, but there's restrictions on, on dining and the amounts of people involved in certain types of businesses, uh, no public gatherings of a certain size and, and things of that nature. Uh, and then step four and step five allow those, those particular establishments and businesses to uh, return to higher and higher percentages of occupancy and things like that. But like I said, um, a little bit ago, uh, steps four and five, no one's gotten step five in Chile. Um, ever. And I think there were a couple uh, districts, maybe around Santiago, uh, the capital of Chile, that at some point were in uh, step four. But by and large, it's uh, mostly just one through three. And currently we uh, in Chile, 14 million of Chile's 18 million inhabitants, which is um, close to 80% of the total population of Chile are living in step one, the super extreme quarantine. And so the rules for that quarantine is that you're not allowed outside your house unless you have permission from the police. You have to get that permission from the police by choosing 
the right form to fill out based on your reasons for needing to leave and where you need to go on the uh, virtual portal of the police website. And then you fill it out and you get this uh, document you can download to your smartphone uh, or have printed out for you and things like that. And you have to show this if they stop you on the street to show you have permission to be outside your home. Uh, so it's not just for going into supermarkets. It's literally a permission slip to leave the confines of your residence and be outside, except for um, this like hour between, I think, 7 and 8 a.m. where you are allowed to uh, engage in exercise, but only at that time. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and and it's uh it's just really wild. So basically, as as Johnny mentioned, these permission slips, the the ones they generally give to most people, unless you're traveling for a funeral or you have to go to the hospital for a surgery or or something like that, um you know, are only for you can only get two of them a week, and you can only and they last two hours. So basically, you're only allowed out of out of your house uh, four hours during the week to do essential purchases. And this includes uh, grocery shopping, going to the pharmacy, buying anything else you would need in town, uh, going to the post office, uh, sending packages, like all of that stuff is included here, um, as well as going to any sort of government office, like you need to download a or sign a form or go to the notary or any of that stuff all included in this. They're not separated at all. You can't get more time for having to do different stuff. It's not just for grocery shopping. It's for everything. Um, so it's very restrictive and, and limiting. And of course, at most of these businesses, except really small local ones where the people are a little more relaxed, um, you have to show this police permission slip to even be allowed inside. Um, and they have multiple guards on the entrances and exits to make sure people without the forms don't slip in uh, somehow, and and everyone's wearing their masks the right way, and everyone's orderly and single file and what have you. I mean, it's very um, it's very dystopian, and I mean, it, it's it's really arbitrary. Uh, you know, they have like those machines to scan your temperature when you go inside, and you put your wrist up, or you know, you go up to it, and it's a it's a wildly different temperature every time. You know, just in the span of a couple seconds, it's a uh, you know, uh, clearly not about um, stopping the spread or any of that stuff, particularly now in, in Chile. Um, it's it's always been about conditioning people to accept um, <clears throat> authoritarian overreaches. They normally wouldn't accept to condition uh, people in Chile, uh, in this case, uh, to have armed guards everywhere and have them be a part of normal life and sort of have that be normal for school children and uh, housewives going to buy ingredients for lunch at the grocery store. And, you know, uh, anyone that travels to the, you know, the city 20 minutes down the road and all of this stuff. Um, it's, it's just uh, really unsettling and amazing, honestly, that it hasn't gotten more um, attention outside of Chile, because even as far as Latin America goes, it just seems that Chile's has been really restrictive, but it's been treated as sort of, you know, a leading democracy in Latin America and all of this stuff. But really the moves it's been making, um, you know, under, under the guise of combating COVID-19 are just um, pretty unreal. People in the West uh, have got um, a real cold, sharp shock coming to them if it is true. And they do implement the measures that I saw in Chile, in uh, UK or America. You are going to see what it's like to be denied to go to buy food 
when you can't afford to buy food for the week and you're buying food daily. Um, th- this is a lot of people's lives. Also, I think there's a lot of selfishness that comes down to the ideas of lockdown being the, uh, a, a reasonable option because a lot of people don't understand. With those permission slips, you get to go out for two hours. So loads of people who live near the city, oh, that's wonderful, you get to go to the supermarket. But people who don't live near the city, they've got to spend 45 minutes commuting either way. And that means that they've only got the... Uh, tiny limited amount of of time to dash around the supermarket get what they want and get back to a bus or a train that gets them back because that commuting that time traveling is part of the 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 two hours you get on the permission slip well i mean obviously this this makes life for the average chilean super stressful and if you are a mother in Chile and your child is in childcare, uh, child uh, all daycares have pretty much been closed since March 2020. Um, the one that my daughter went to closed forever uh, in June of last year. Um, and so I was, you know, I, I had to take her to her babysitter's house during the day. And with these uh, extreme lockdowns, you're only allowed out for that amount of time twice a week. I can't go, I can't spend my whole weekly permissions in one day to get time uh you know permission to leave my house to drop off my daughter and then uh pick her up then you know just one day of childcare uses up my my permissions uh to leave my residence uh all in one day right i mean it's just totally out of control so who um can even get a babysitter uh and work from home in those situations um it's it's totally nuts and, and at least in the west i mean it, i don't think it's been that intense in terms of uh, restrictions on on childcare, but in Chile it really got to a point where it was it was they were trying to make it I think just Im- impossible um, for for people to uh, you know work normally um, and it, it's just um, you know just so insane uh, in a way that I just haven't seen in, in or at least seen reported about in other countries I'm sure this is the case in some countries but you know for example I have a friend that lives in a, a town. Um, called Villa Rica, uh, that's a relative, you know, a, a small city. And, you know, her house is right next to a playground. She has a daughter that's the same age as my daughter, about three years old. And they were outside, um, and had gone to the playground in two minutes, uh, swarmed by like five or six police officers, uh, chided for not wearing masks and being outside their residences. They had to go, um, inside immediately, or there was going to be an arrest made, you know, you can't even have your kid, um, alone on a playground. I mean, it's just so, um, you know, mental, um, and in the impact of, of this on, on children in Chile has not even been, uh, given any lip service in the news at all. And at least, you know, in the U S and the UK, you'll hear mentions of it, at least in mainstream media, not that that really does anything about, the damage being done, but at least they acknowledge it in Chile. That hasn't happened at all. No one's uh, even mentioned uh, what's going on here. And a lot of, you know, Chilean families in, in Santiago, you know, the capital where most of the population of Chile actually, actually lives or any of the other, you know, uh, cities of varying sizes throughout Chile, most kids and families live in apartments that they're not allowed to leave that have very small green spaces um, if they have them at all, especially in Santiago's case. And those kids have been literally locked inside their rooms, like, like prisoners, uh, for a year, unable to access any sort of childcare, just, you know, online, online schooling for now. Uh, Some schools in Chile have started doing in-person classes, but it's, you know, the kids of pretty much every age, from what I understand, have to wear 
um, masks and, uh, you know, I mean, it's a mix of, for a lot of them, a mix of this, you know, online school stuff and, and regular stuff. I think there's um, trade-offs in in different countries, uh, and they all seem to be made um, at the expense of the younger generation. And I, I I'm probably more vocal on this when it comes down to COVID stuff. Is that um, lockdown is uh, mental, uh, often physical, even sexual abuse against children. That's what it means. That's what it fundamentally comes down to. That you either leave um, children in a house with the people and perpetrators who are going to treat them extremely badly, or you, the uh, the other thing that you're doing at the same time is cutting them off from all so social interaction. And anybody who um, has a child, who uh, cares for a child, knows fully well that without social interaction, your child's behavior gets worse and worse and worse because they need that that's part of the the process of growing up and i think a lot of the uh lockdown measures are just i can't see them as anything other than child abuse if you're putting them on to children and it's having the mental effect and it's causing at one point uh they were saying it's one in four children in the uk were starting to have suicidal thoughts that were um brought to them by the experience that they had through lockdown um if that is a true figure, which I always think these figures are, are dumbed down to, so that they don't have to question the narrative as much. But if those are true figures, it's it's devastating. It's devastating for the next generation. The problems we see are going to be um, uh, are going to be really vast, and they're going to be harsh, and they're going to be in about ten years' time that we really see the the result of what lockdown now is doing. I was talking to someone I knew very well who had children. And I was saying, but you know, you, 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 he's a guy in France, and he was very, oh, my children are back in school, everything's basically back to normal. But the thing that people don't understand in those situations, if your little town opens up a school, there's many, many more schools that can open. There's many communities who can't afford to change their uh, companies, their businesses, their schools, their um, a a everything that, that runs at the moment. They, they can't afford to change it to uh, fit the modern business model, which is about taking away uh, probably 75% of your business and still maintaining a living, which is obviously an impossible feat for the majority of people. Um, the the whole the whole idea that that lockdown is doing better more uh, positive than it's doing negative is I think just madness. It's some form of um, uh, mass distortion of the truth. The the truth is that young people will be the most heavily affected by this. And when when uh, in Mexico got to see that young people and kids were regularly not allowed in the shops. That was something I didn't necessarily see in Chile, but maybe we didn't test it out that much. But the children had to wait outside um, while adults went into the shop. So this type of idea, you're not allowed to be in part of the society, even though you're at the lowest risk and you're most unlikely to spread and be transmissible, yeah. that makes no difference. We're going di to discount you from society and we're going to take part of your life away. We're going to stop you going to school we're going to stop you going to nurseries we're going to stop you having normal social interactions and we are going to literally destroy your mental um, mental uh, 
uh, your psychosis is going to be all over the place. Uh, the most important times of development is when you're a kid, and we all know that any uh, even minor stunt in that development causes major issues later on. And these aren't minor. What we're experiencing now is one of the the most. It's happening globally, and it's really there's so much focus on the young people. That policy in Mexico is really crazy about um, not being able to take children of any age into a supermarket. It is insanely discriminatory against uh, single mothers who, if they don't have someone to watch their kid, literally cannot go into a grocery store. If they don't have, I mean, there are a lot of cases where you have to, you know, when you're a single mom, you have to take your child with you somewhere because there's not childcare in that particular point in time when you have to go to the store. And in in that case in Mexico, I mean, what do those women do? Um, It's just, um, I mean, that's not even something that was a policy in Chile, which was um, something I found kind of this is what surprising. I, this is what I think about it is trade-offs between countries because they couldn't do one with the other. But some at some point they're going to do they're going to do exactly that. They're going to make a policy where you can only go out for two hours. You can't take your kids into your shop. You can't leave them outside. So you're stuck in a situation where you may as well not go out. And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make sure that you're not going to go out as much. It's all about keeping you home keeping you home by introducing arbitrary rules all over the place in my opinion anyway well in the case of chile's lockdown system i mean it just comes across as so arbitrary because they have these uh, not transparent guidelines for when they move um a, a city or region uh, through two different steps of their five-step lockdown system so you know every week and sometimes twice a week i mean it's variable right because uh, they i think they just want to cultivate just like this feeling of instability in people's lives They'll announce, okay, this community and this community uh, move down to step one to the total quarantine. These, you know, five communities move to step two. These go uh, from step three to step two. These go from step two to step three. And no one knows where any, uh, when the change will come, uh, when it will be announced, when it will go into effect. So no one can make any sort of long-term plans. It's just as soon as you're allowed to uh, conduct your business, whether it's from Monday through Friday um, or uh, in step three, you know, uh, during certain hours over the course of the week. It's um, just really, you, you can't make any long term plans. It takes stability uh, out yeah. of much of your life. Um, it, it takes the ability to, to plan down the road completely. Uh, it, it, we had to live, I mean, sometimes in Chile, though, it's already hard. You have to, like, the power goes out sometimes. You're not sure if you're going to get it back in the same night. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's like even when you do make plans, things are there to scupper it. So that on top is an extra pressure. It's not like it's something that's replaced previous pressures. The country is still left um, disheveled in many parts of, of, of uh, uh, the poorer areas, especially, and the more remote areas are just being left behind by this... Uh, uh, by governments who are just carbon copies of uh, failed Western governments, because that's what we see around these places. It tends to be the uh, carbon copies of failed Western states. Well, they're like viceroys of Western of the Western states, and they're there to allow you know the Western-backed multinational corporations to exploit the resources um, of that particular, um, you know, country and they Chile is certain, <laughs> right. And, and Chile is certainly no exception to that. And one thing I did want to highlight too, about what's going on in Chile that actually uh, is going on parallel to COVID, 
um, is this effort by the Chilean government to basically declare martial law in a specific region, the region I was living in, which is, as I said earlier, is called La Araucanía. Um, it is called that because it, uh, Araucanía refers to the Araucos, which is the Spanish name for the uh, indigenous Mapuche people of Chile. And um, it, within Chile, the majority of the Mapuche population are in that region, uh, or they live in the city of Santiago. So basically, this region that is uh, heavily populated by the Mapuche, uh, which have been in conflict with the Chilean state since its founding, um, basically, the Chilean government is attempting and has been for several years uh, to declare martial law in this region because of what they claim to be uh, Mapuche um, violence um, against certain communities. And there are instances where that has happened, but there are also instances where the Chilean police have basically um, committed acts of violence that were subsequently blamed on the Mapuches. And there have been cases where the police have been found out where they were filmed setting fire to things that were later blamed on the Mapuches. And then publicly that narrative was used to, to promote and justify this need for martial law in the region, which of course results in the suspension of constitutional rights. Um, and a lot of other things obviously come with that. And um, they tried to do this last year too, where they weaponized actually all the, the, the trucking unions of Chile um, and did try to do a blockade. They did do a blockade um, of the region I was living in, which uh, resulted in uh, shortages in grocery stores. It wasn't super severe, but they threatened to make it more severe. And it was going to be worse until it came out that these supposedly furious truckers, furious over the Mapuche violence, supposedly Mapuche violence, uh, were caught on camera, uh, super drunk, um, running around with hookers and all this stuff on the highway and not actually uh, being and talking about how they had been paid to go on strike and all of this stuff um, to, to justify publicly, you know, this, this uh, declaration of martial law. Of course, when the public narrative fell apart, so too did that, did that push. And this was all going on late last year. And then uh, in February, um, a month ago, they resurrected it again and continued to push for that again because of another incident that uh, the public narrative on that also fell apart because it, it turned out that this murder um, that had allegedly been done uh, by the Mapuche of a, of a police officer, ex-police officer, I can't quite remember, had actually been committed by another person tied to the police forces. And uh, this was exposed on national television by a former uh, police captain. Right. So obviously the most recent push for martial law um, sort of uh, got hit again and didn't get to uh, be declared as, as, as was being uh, pushed by the uh, uh, Chilean government at the time. But it's definitely something they've been trying to do consistently, uh, both before COVID and uh, under the guise of or why, you know, most of the populations distracted by, by COVID trying to declare martial law in this particular region, uh, that I was living directly in. And that was definitely uh, very unsettling because basically, and this is my opinion based on my experience living there, the reason they want to declare, the real reason they want to declare martial law in that region is because they're having major issues with, uh, getting around Mapuche land laws that basically prevent uh, land classified as indigenous land from changing hands from a Mapuche to a non-Mapuche. So for example, if um, <clears throat> a Mapuche owned property uh, is found to have gold on it, for example, and 
the landowner wishes to sell that land to an international mining corporation, uh, they cannot because it has to go into the hands of another person who is a, uh, a Mapuche. However, if you declare uh, basically Mapuches to be terrorists, and, which is what they're essentially trying to do, um, and declare martial law in this, in this region, then it's much easier to get around these indigenous land laws because you can just seize the land um, and you get to suspend people's uh, rights to their private property and just their rights in general in that type of situation. And, you know, um, when I was living in this small mountain town uh, in 2016, they actually discovered mine a uh, gold, uh, gold, sorry, in that, um, <clears throat> in that area, uh, owned by a Mapuche and we're trying to, uh, the mayor of that town was trying to negotiate for some large company, a way to get, uh, that land out of his hands and into the hands of this, uh, company that could then exploit that area. And, um, <clears throat> it, it was unsuccessful, but this is something that they've been trying to do for a long time. And actually you may have heard, if you follow news about like alternative uh, alternative energy and sustainable energy, Chile has frequently been praised for wind energy and uh, hydroelectric power and all of this stuff. But really, um, in the region I was living in, the Mapuche region, they were damming up all of these rivers, supposedly for hydroelectric power plants, but they were never connected to any city. And it's because they set them up there to power mines that they hope to put all through the mountains there. Because, of course, the north of, uh, of Chile is uh, just all about mines and mining. Um, it's, the, it's the largest producer of copper uh, in the world. And so uh, the Andes farther south also has a lot of mineral wealth, but it hasn't been able to be uh, exploited because of the Mapuche land laws, uh, among other factors too, and environmental protections um, of, of the forest there and things like that. But I definitely think this is a way to uh, get that area um, accessible to mining corporations. And, uh, you know, the, the Mapuche um, community really stands in, in the way of that to a, to a large degree. So there's a lot of um, things going on in that region in particular. Um, between, you know, that situation and the, and the lockdown, it was just really not um, a good place to be raising a toddler. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, came to a difficult, um, very difficult decision to leave, uh, leave there. I'd lived there, you know, for six years of my life in that region, really specifically, um, pretty much the whole, whole time. And, uh, you know, it's all, uh, become so different, um, in, in, in those six years, specifically in the last year. Um, but I think a lot more people need to be aware of it because, you know, even though Chile is geographically far away, um, there is a, a, a historical precedent of, uh, the Western powers when they want to do, impose a, a, a po economic policy, they know will be unpopular or an authoritarian policy, they know will be unpopular. They implement it and they test it out first in Chile and gauge public reaction, um, on a much smaller scale, and then they, uh, you know, uh, 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 export it um, and the lessons learned out to countries uh, afterwards. And that definitely appears to be happening uh, with COVID and, and other things going on. Well, I, I know that, that there's a lot of people uh, in, in my home country who would be uh, completely and utterly shaking their heads right now and saying there's just no way they'd be able to stop me from going out. I'd just go out anyway. Uh, but once you're actually got fines that you're going to have to pay, then maybe you do think another way. However, 
uh, I think we're in we're in a lucky situation in the West that we've got the ability, even though it's often only a, a slight ability, to uh, appeal things, to go to courts, to uh, challenge things legally, and that was something that is obviously missing to a, a lot of Chilean people because the 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 difference, the gap, the wealth gap is obviously quite massive um, in Chile. Um, did you hear anything about fracking when you were in Chile? Like, were, were they getting into fracking as much as they've been doing in America and the UK? Uh, no, uh, Chile doesn't ha really sit over any, uh, from what I understand, any natural gas that they could exploit. Though on the other side of the, An uh, the Andes in, in Argentina, uh, they were doing some fracking projects in this area that I think is, uh, was called Vaca Muerta. Uh, but I think a lot of that ended up getting uh, shut down because of debts and stuff. But that involved a lot of the same... Uh, multinational companies that are everywhere, um, you know, with fracking. But I think it was um, oil fracking, not natural gas. But So it was goodbye, Chile. Um, hello, Mexico, for a brief amount of time. Did you enjoy that? Um, yeah, not really. So um, a lot of people have talked about how Mexico is much more lax uh, than other countries uh, with coronavirus stuff. And, you know, I think at the federal level... Uh, that is true. It's, you know, the only country right now in the Americas that you can get in without a PCR test and you're not required to quarantine for any number of days upon arrival into Mexico. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that there's no um, <laughs> uh, authoritarian abuses or, uh, you know, that it's COVID dystopia free. You know, as, as we mentioned a little bit ago, there is that uh, pretty insane rule about the supermarkets. And, you know, uh, there are um, a lot of people, um, you know, you're forced to wear masks in supermarkets and stuff. It's really not uh, that different than some other places. And from what I understand, it's really varies on a city by city or region by region basis. You know, they're not all being enforced. Uh, you know, some places are more in intense about COVID restrictions than, than others. Um, but, you know, uh, a big part of my dislike of Mexico is probably the weather because I don't like tropical weather at all, um, which is part of why I was living in Chile, which is close to penguins in, in Antarctica in cold places. Um, <laughs> uh, so the climate wasn't wasn't for me, that was for sure. But I just definitely didn't, um, you know, I mean, I guess in some sense it was a little more free, but I think a lot of the... Uh, being there, I kind of realized that the COVID dystopia uh, that is being, you know, it's something that's global. And even if you go to a country thinking you're going to avoid it, um, you're not, you know, it's not something we can really run from anymore. Um, and so I think at this point, at least my decision uh, in, in terms of leaving Chile wasn't necessarily, oh, I want to go somewhere that doesn't uh, to the, any country that has, you know, less of this dystopia. It's more like, where can I go? based on uh, my personal ability to build a community somewhere where that community can then resist what is coming. Because I think in terms of like federal government stuff, um, you know, all the governments that have not been regime changed at this point um, are going to go along with the agenda to a certain extent. You know, in the case of Mexico, there are aspects of the agenda that they are happy to go along with. And a lot of the smart city uh, stuff, you know, Chile, uh, notably, is trying to be a leader in smart cities and 5G and all of Latin America. But they're followed very closely by Mexico. Um, and Chile and Mexico, for example, both uh, use Carbine 911, uh, mm -hmm. the pre-crime 
uh, predictive policing, uh, you know, software developed by Israeli military intelligence and funded by Peter Thiel and Jeffrey Epstein that you may remember from my work, Mexico and Chile both uh, widely use those systems. You know, it's not like uh, the Mexican government is totally... Uh, committed to sticking it to the elite or any of this stuff, you know, so we can't really fall into the illusions uh, that that, you know, type of uh, leadership or, or whatever you want to call it is going to get, get, you know, save you or shield you entirely from the situation. I think that's increasingly going to come from, um, are you able to develop a resilient community that doesn't depend on the system to be able to weather the storm that's coming? And, um, you know, in my case, that's why, you know, uh, or in our case, that's why we ended up coming to the United Kingdom after Chile, because it's certainly not the case that the United Kingdom government uh, is not implementing uh, extreme COVID dystopia. I mean, they definitely are um, to, a, to a huge degree. Um, but, you know, in our situation, it's easier to develop that community here than it would be in other countries. And um, I think that's really you know, what we have to uh, be, remain focused on in terms of what's going on here um, is, you know, how can you, how can your family best weather the storm? The storm? It's all going to be uh, local based. So, you know, where you have uh, the most family and friend connections or connections to people that you can trust um, and, um, you know, ties to resources that you will need to survive and things like that, you know, that's I think how we need to be thinking more than, oh, well, this national government isn't dystopian yet as all these other governments. Therefore, I should move there. Uh, therefore, I should move there, even though I don't know anyone and I've never been there before and I don't speak the language or, or things like that, you know. Well, soon I think it's going to be impossible to even go anywhere. Um, they obviously, you saw the announcement that, that £5,000 fines would be given in the UK for people traveling abroad. So that's just a, a basic, you naughty if you go abroad and there's no way it's going to be within your pricing uh, to be able to do it in the cost effective to be able to go on holiday nowadays into another country of course they're going to make it so that every every uh, avenue you want to take to have a little bit of freedom is plugged up in some way shape or form and that that is going to be more restrictive for people who think oh lockdowns are lifting it's all right you've been here before you've got to not be naive about this um the future lockdowns we will see harder lockdowns than we've seen before uh, if it's not at first it will be eventually because this is because this has become uh now tried and tested and and people are, are sitting it's like people uh reaching uh, like society reaches some sort of equilibrium when it's getting new rules are enforced upon it so you, right now these lockdown figures at first they were oh that's really hard to come to understanding what we're not allowed to leave them we're not allowed to do this but now people know the rules they they're allowed to live by and so they they're more likely to accept certain parts of them and uh, 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 express few they're going to dissent against. Uh, eventually, the next time, those few will disappear until people will just acquiesce to the whole uh, bundle. And the whole bundle is what you'll get. You'll get all parts of the negative laws from Mexico and the negative laws from Chile because it's all about it coalescing and seeing what you push back on. A lot of this has been experimentation phase. At the same time, there's um, uh, medical experimentation 
experimentation going on. There's mental psychological experimentation going on all around the world. Um, and it's very clear that not everybody's on exactly the same, uh, hymn sheet, but they're all singing the same song. In Mexico, I, I thought like the police were chilled compared to all of the rest of the places. The police were chilled, but you could see that the underlings of uh, places were really quick to want to use COVID as an excuse for why they didn't have to do something or why they could avoid giving the service out or why um, you weren't allowed, why they were closing this restaurant or, or, or closing this bar. It was. It's very easy for other people to use that narrative and that again sets standards that become uh, to a balance that eventually becomes normal and we've got to be careful not to um, pick all of these things as normal at the end of this experience we've got to remember that this way of living uh, societies in lockdown etc as being the first port call especially is uh, is insane and uh, it's going to change our society negatively um, in ways that we, you cannot even imagine yet well um so to wrap up about chile another thing i wanted to bring up is the fact that you may have seen chile in the news i think i also mentioned this earlier um, that Chile has been in the news because it is one of the world leaders in uh, vaccine doses administered on a daily basis. And that's actually pretty interesting because um, basically this um, vaccine campaign success uh, for the president of Chile, uh, Sebastián Piñera, um, he at this time last year, his approval rating in Chile was 6%. Uh, ridiculously low, hugely unpopular, um, has remained unpopular for a very long time, um, and is basically, even though he's supposed to be in power, I think until 2022 or 2023, he's probably facing an election challenge anyway, just, um, at the end of this year, but really it's, uh, he's been rescued at least in terms of the opinions of the Chilean press by the success of the vaccination campaign, uh, despite the fact that he's been uh, widely criticized elsewhere because, of course, the press justifies, um, you know, the continual extension of lockdowns and emergency state powers and all of this uh, by saying that it's it's ne it, it's necessary because of how Piñera and his government uh, manage the you know the crisis up to that particular point um, or what have you. Uh, with the case of vaccines, they've really just, uh, you know, given him glowing reviews and, uh, oh, how great, how proud we are to be Chilean because uh, look at all the vaccines we're administering and we're a global leader in it and all of this stuff. Well, it's interesting when you take a look at the countries that are the global leaders in vaccination rates um, aside from Chile. Uh, so from what uh, from the last time I looked at it, the top four uh, are in, in this, you know, uh, in terms of this metric are Israel, uh, followed by the United Arab Emirates, uh, then it's Chile, and then it's the United Kingdom. And what's particularly interesting about this is that most of these governments, not all, but most of them have basically promoted uh, the fact that their vaccination campaign success will allow them to reopen their economy faster, but not reopen the old economy reopen a new smarter economy and all of this stuff and of course we've seen in israel's case that they've been at the forefront of the vaccine passport system in terms of that's passports use domestically not necessarily for international travel um instead using it you know if you want to go to a bar or a gym or you know uh, a certain place of business you have to show that you've been vaccinated um <clears throat> 
and things like that. And of course, um, the United Arab Emirates is um, also very focused on promoting, you know, smart economy and smart cities um, and all of this technology looking to be a leader in that for the post oil world, because, of course, their economy right now, not unlike Saudi Arabia, is uh, largely dependent on oil and, and natural gas and, and things like that that are set to be phased out and replaced with more uh, with the energy sources of the fourth industrial revolution and things like that. And so it's interesting then that you have those two um, countries and then you have uh, leading in vaccination rates and then you have Chile right behind them. And what's interesting is that Chile has uh, in parallel with the vaccination campaign also developed and and started to roll a plan about um, basically making the entire country, the first Latin American country uh, to have 5G basically running um, uh, throughout, um, you know, its territory. And uh, the way they talk about it um, in relationship to the vaccination campaign is also pretty interesting because they basically talk about how Chile is going to move to a smart economy. Currently, Santiago, uh, the capital of Chile, is supposed to be the smartest city in Latin America already. Uh, They've made it very clear for years, including Piñera when he first came to power, uh, this time anyway, in Chile, this this presidential term of his, that he was going to make Chile a world leader or a, a regional leader um, in 5G and in, in, in Santiago would, you know, ad- adopt more smart city functionality more, more quickly. And uh, one quote that came out pretty recently um, <clears throat> uh, from the Chilean government was discussions of um, if we implement and roll out this 5G infrastructure quickly and we get everyone... Uh, vaccinated or a high percentage of the population vaccinated, we could even uh, court Amazon, uh, you know, the U.S.-based corporation, Jeff Bezos Corporation, uh, to open a data center in the southern cone of South America, uh, hopefully in Chile, and basically trying to court, you know, a lot of these uh, big Silicon Valley tech firms uh, and get them to basically establish, you know, satellite smart cities or or test beds, or, you know, uh, smart global infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, um, in Chile specifically, and they want Chile to be a regional leader in that. Um, and of course, before them, you have Israel and the UAE, uh, which are basically sort of uh, working together to adopt that spot, um, that position within the Middle East, um, you know, as seen by their their recent agreements because of the peace plan and all of this stuff and the normalization publicly of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And then, of course, after Chile, you have the United Kingdom uh, leading in daily vaccination rates. And, you know, the UK is also making pushes pretty similar uh, to what Chile is trying to do in in Israel and the UAE are attempting as well. Well, UK have a lot of um, bluster and bravado about their their digital infrastructure strategies. Uh, For for years, the debate in Britain um, over digital uh, upgrades has been is the internet going to get faster is the internet going to get faster over and over again and so the the uh, conservatives originally put a big push into uh, making sure everybody was up to to high speed broadband because 
in speeds, internet average internet speeds uh, in the UK, we're actually behind Romania, um, which is 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 it's interesting. I'm not sure if it means Romania is a high tech place, but uh, <laughs> I think it means that we've got very slow broadband and a very slow average, um, which we've ex- experienced before. And they they've been putting forward this drive to get up to a gigabyte. Everybody get up to a gigabyte uh, instead of where they are right now. Um, recently in their budget in the conservative budget rishi sunak kind of dropped all of the the promises to try and get the broadband speeds up and instead seemed to be um seemed to talk more about digital infrastructure in general and changing over to digital society but of course anybody who knows knows you need fast internet to be able to enter into that digital society and so the idea that they're not going to be fit in high speed um fiber optic cable as much as they said they were going to do and instead they seem to be producing papers like they did yesterday uh which talk about um looking much more into the effects of satellite and 5g technology in nature might suggest that they're starting to think that maybe they could just use 5G um, and satellite technology for all communications in the future and start to get slowly get rid of this idea of having technologies under the ground where they got to dig up pavements all of the time, etc. I mean, that's the benefit they put forward, um, but the, the, the negatives aren't put forward because while they're talking about asking questions about the safety of, of 5G and satellite technology use in um, more rural areas um, they're not even having that debate about the ones they're f- currently fitting in the city so I can't see them as going too far on public policy debate because when it comes to 5G there is no public policy debate they're not having a conversation about it no one's allowed to have a conversation about it and if you try then you're um, a tower burning thug uh, rather than than just trying to ask some questions that make sense um, it, so so I, I I think that the government have cut down in this budget on their digital uh, imaginations or machinations. Um, they, they've decided instead the, about the only digital thing they did in this budget was to raise the, the uh, amount you can spend on the wireless cards in the supermarkets to £100 instead of £60 or whatever it is at the moment. And that was about as digital as the last budget got. Yet there was lots of rhetoric and talk around it, of course, as there always is. Um, but there's lots of... of uh, it seems to be more projects than there are starting than there are finishing in Britain. I'm not sure that there's um, much in the way of uh, future thinking. There, a lot of it seems to be relying on uh, foreign technology for to do uh, what they need to do. Well, I think you know these four countries that happen to have the highest vaccination rates. I don't think it's about whether their ambitions will succeed. I think it's about the, their federal governments, their national governments. Um, wanting and attempting to position their country to be a leader in a specific area um, or field that will be of increasing relevance to this whole Great Reset Fourth Industrial Revolution as it um, develops and plays out. So, um, uh, in, in the case of the UK, then you know there's a lot of um, 
important um, AI research for this whole agenda that goes on in the UK. Um, one of the biggest AI companies that's currently owned by Google called DeepMind is based in the UK. Um, you, of course, have Darktrace, the intelligence-linked uh, cybersecurity firm with a CIA and MI5 guys on the board and all, and all of this stuff. Uh, that are, you know, involved not just in the UK and their power grid, but, you know, uh, the Vatican, uh, U.S. companies and, and corporations use them um, and things like that. Um, and also, you know, the UK has talked about being becoming um, a leader in quantum computing and all of this stuff. They're, uh, they've talked about making a uh, UK equivalent of the US, uh, the Pentagon's DARPA, um, for whatever reason, um, you know, changing uh, their nuclear weapon stockpile laws and all of this stuff, saying that uh, UK national security has become intimately linked with AI and all of this stuff. They're definitely making overtures that that's the agenda they want to pursue. And I think the UK government's policy, um, they're expecting it. These people, the people in power uh, in the UK right now, are expecting the situation in terms of uh, uh, what, you know, how the public can make their uh, dissatisfaction known. Uh, they're expecting a change on that front with their new uh, policing bill and uh, attempts to criminalize any protests that they deem an annoyance and things like that. So when they implement unpopular policies, they can just... Um, you know, repress them and not have to go through the motions they've had to up until this point that there is a, you know, a free right to assemble uh, in the country. Whether, I don't think they'll necessarily succeed in that, but I definitely think that's something that they're uh, expecting to be able to uh, discount in the months ahead. Well, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill uh, 2021, which has been um, the reason for riots in Bristol, um, as uh, mostly did it, it's it's a very uh, Tory police reform. Um, something you see when the Tories are in charge: uh, strong police having stronger powers, longer sentences, harsher uh, sentences. You know all of the 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 things that curry votes with the older folks, um, especially at a time when older folks are dying because of your policies. It's best to 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 load those up. Um, but the the two lines that are really interesting in it was the uh, strengthen police powers to tackle non-violent protests that have significant disruptive effect on the public or on access to parliament. So that idea that any non-violent protests, and what they've done there is they've changed um, peaceful to non-violent so that they could target peaceful protests they've they they're rebranding peaceful protests as non-violent protests and that means it's always one step away from the non being taken away and it's always one step away from being a violent process protest in people's minds um i think the wording of that is very interesting and then the next uh, uh change was to strengthen police powers to tackle unauthorized encampments where trespassers cause distress and misery on local communities um uh, and businesses that that affects so many different parts of um, protesting, uh, especially for sites for travelers, etc., where they could basically um, stop you from gathering to protect a place or um, protest against uh, the demolition of entire uh, mini communities of travelers that have built up over time. So these these target more than just uh, th those two things target more than just protesters they target the the ability to 
enact any form of protest. They take away peaceful protest as a right, which we all know what this is about. We all know we've got to stop being naive. Um, that when they introduce bills like this, they may have a lot of things in there that you agree with. Um, so some of the, the things for, uh, I don't agree with automatic half-term sentences um which i think is when they basically say oh you're a violent rapist um your sentence will be 15 years but you'll automatically get out in seven and a half years uh, that's that's how the the law works at the moment and that was uh, a lot of these things are really unpopular and so it's easier to push the really unpopular things through when you're reverting um some of the old laws back to the way they were before um this this country the uk in general uh is on its way bristol is very much uh a windsock for the windy direction with the direction of the wind or it's um a bellwether or the canary in the coal mine once you have uh violence and a riots break out in bristol you're three to four months away from having riots and violence breaking out in london so we know that this end of this summer probably probably august september we're likely to see uh london riots that we haven't seen in a fair few years probably 2011 will be as close as what they'll come to um but the more the, this is why they need to open up for a short amount of time because they know the time periods that people get really antsy um and they're going to have to lock down society again because as they've said they soon they're going to have to start locking down society for environmental reasons because you're killing the environment environment of course at home you normal everyday people not these companies polluting the oceans and putting all all sorts of crap up into or the, the skies military or, polluting. or yeah. yeah or all of these uh main polluters that we have uh responsible for the state of the planet but they want us to take the responsibility for that and feel culpable for all of the damage they've done and say you're not allowed to come out of your houses so that we can continue to do that and yet we meet our quotas on carbon taxes or carbon credits or all of the nonsense that they create so that they can make money yeah well you know the uk government's already really announced that they're going to lock down again uh for some the supposed third wave uh that the lockdown hasn't the last lockdown hasn't even really ended yet and they're already saying they're going to do it again uh, and there's going to be a third wave in july and it seems like there's a lot of events sort of coalescing around this june july uh period you know you have like a the Taliban in Afghanistan saying they're going to uh, attack the the West uh, if Biden doesn't, um, you know, hold to the, the deal that was brokered under the Trump administration um, and uh, a couple other geopolitical um, events in, in the Middle East that are supposed to uh, pop off during that time. You have major overtures uh, towards some sort of war with the <clears throat> Iran um, on the horizon, uh, in a lot of uh, increase in tensions with China and Russia specifically, um, both, and it's not just in terms of rhetoric anymore, you know, so I think uh, there is a push uh, to lock down uh, in the West because there's going to be some uh, wars, uh, maybe, that get started or some uh, geopolitical uh, tensions that, that reach really, uh, you know, new heights and it's worth pointing out that in the u.s's case you know the continuity of government protocols uh that they can you know the u.s federal government can really implement whenever they feel like it to basically declare um a police state and suspend the constitution 
in the 80s, examples of uh, national uh, emergencies that would warrant declaring continuity of government included uh, major national opposition to U.S. military intervention or adventurism abroad, right? Um, so, I, I mean, they definitely want stuff uh, locked down uh, when that stuff uh, takes place because they don't want to have to deal with domestic dissent uh, with everything else they're trying to juggle in an act uh, during this this you know, really uh, crazy and, and critical uh, period of history. I think I think one of the, the things we've got to realize as well is part of the reason why they want to keep so many people uh, indoors is there are is so, there are so many reasons to protest at the moment. There are so many things that, like I said, we don't get public policy debate with when it comes to 5G. Um, that's the same with a lot of the rules around COVID, a lot of the lockdown rules. I think it's very interesting the World Health Organization were the ones to say pretty early on in com uh, comparison to this whole event um, in relation to this whole event uh, that that lockdown shouldn't be used automatically as a tool to control viruses and that they or don't as the want, main tool or as a main tool yeah well the, the fact is is that they know legally that's going to be the thing that lands the people in hot water and we're about to see the lot of the legal challenges come from um uh, what happened. they don't want people challenging legally or with protests in the street they don't want people outside their house they don't want people finding ways to make their voice heard they're trying to take people's voices away at the moment it's um systematic and it will continue until enough people say no more and there is uh there, there are people who are going against the protest orders that are currently being put down uh, to stop people actually having a right to a voice. I think it's also important to point out that the reason these lockdowns, uh, they plan to have them drag on for not just this year, but, you know, years to come. Uh, you know, that's why we saw The Guardian, uh, like you mentioned a second ago, uh, Johnny, talk about the need to do lockdowns every so often for climate change so that, you know, now lockdowns are about climate change and not about COVID. Why is it, you know, why is the main justification for this extreme policy shifting like that? And why is that not weird to people? You know, well, it's because the, the lockdowns need to happen because there's a lot of infrastructure uh, these governments uh, need to put in place in order to be able to create the, the control systems um, in, in all these different sectors that they want to create. And a lot of that, of course, is based on AI. And it is my opinion that their AI, they thought at this point, once they, you know, got access to all this data and everything was virtual, you know, that their AI would advance a lot faster than it has or uh, would get to a point where it could be more autonomous and do uh, control a lot of these systems um, in ways that it, it can't yet. And I think that... Um, you know, they're going to try and keep things as locked down as possible until that point at which they feel comfortable about the extent of the infrastructure uh, being installed. And so I think the fact that you're seeing a lot of these governments uh, that are trying to lead on this now, making these detailed plans for rolling out that infrastructure in Chile, the UK, uh, Israel, in, in the UAE and some other places, 
you know, have made it uh, just in the past couple months really clear what direction they're going to go, what infrastructure they're going to develop and what it's for. Um, I think we're going to see that on a bigger scale, too, uh, from from, you know, numerous other nations. But I think the fact that the nations that are trying to lead are just trying to start and roll this out is a, is a really big indicator that they're one not ready yet. They need uh, us at least a certain percentage of the population to continue to go along with lockdown. Um, and that they're actually pretty vulnerable right now in a sense because they have, you know, this situation where people probably aren't going to easily go along with lockdown for very much longer um, unless there's some uh, big wild card event, uh, whether COVID or otherwise thrown in the mix. Um, and they, they, but they have to keep it locked down till the AI is ready. And if the AI isn't advancing the way they want, and there's also the possibility too, that it may never get to the point they want and the type of cognitive computing they want to develop is actually not actually possible to produce in a functional way. They're going to keep trying to drag this out, um, for as long as they, they need to have that infrastructure there. So I think that's really the main driver of what lockdown, the lockdown policy is. Um, and, you know, they're going to beta test again in Chile and some of these other countries how long it takes to roll those systems out in nations of this particular size. Because the, the you know, um, before they try and do it in a country like the U.S., for example, that's much larger than all the countries I was I was just talking about, both in terms of physical size and population size. You know, it's a much more ambitious project if you're going to... Uh, uh, gauge how it how you can roll it out and and quash dissent to it and all of this stuff in smaller countries like Chile and and Israel and the UK and all of that then it's much easier to apply what you have learned from that to a larger country like the like the US for example. There's um there's a, a lot to be said uh, about them not actually being able to roll out all of these uh, technological solutions. Um, uh, and I do, uh, I think that eyes are way too big for their belly. Complacency, complacency and cockiness tends to be the downfall of these elites. But I also do think it's important to remember that, um, things like flight and uh, electricity were awe inspiring to the first people who, who experienced them. And AI to us is something that's new and is a new technology. Um, but I, there's always something that's even more technologically advanced coming afterwards so we've got to be careful and and uh open our eyes to what that may be and these people they may put all their eggs in one basket and discover they've just got a fail at the end of the day that they haven't got the ability to create some sort of um almost supernatural uh ai overlord which will have um every answer to every question that you can give that idea is something that is very much a fairy tale and these people are are very childlike in the way that they chase that fairy tale uh, almost like it's eternal life. Well, I think that is a great place to end it because it really is important to uh, underscore the point that, you know, it may look like a hopeless situation to a lot of people, but really what you have to understand is that this agenda, particularly right now, is very vulnerable. Um, and there's a reason they're trying to you know, make it illegal to uh, ex to use traditional avenues of expressing dissent. And we really need to start planning out really effective ways to resist that don't necessarily involve getting in the street and being physical with police officers. Um, you know, basically, I think divesting from the the system 
the powers that be whatever, particularly economically, like not paying taxes to these governments anymore and funding them um, and things like that are, are really uh, the way forward. And that's something, you know, you can be passive about. You don't have to get out in the street and necessarily um, get physical over it. But, I you know, I think we really need to start planning that stuff out if, if you know, people haven't started already because, you know, we are at a position where we can really start to affect change if we realize, if we let go of the fear they've been trying to cultivate in the global population over the course of the year, if we can let go of that and realize that they're particularly vulnerable now and that's why they're trying to set all of this up in this particular way, um, I think that is a really key point uh, to end this podcast on. So for everyone listening, uh, thanks for tuning in. Also, thank you for your patience as you know we make this big uh, move out of Chile uh, to another country and and try and have been trying to get settled and all of that. Um, we really appreciate that and and thanks a lot for uh, your support and for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>